Welcome to Cutie Clinic. I'm Jack Cushwood, room now, Cutie Clinic. Interesting cases for big thinkers like you. Cutie Clinic is brought to you by Room Now's coverage of ACR 21. Smart thinkers spend their time smartly with Room Now during the next week. It starts on Friday the 5th. But today we're going to talk about lupus. And lupus is a challenge for some. But what do you do with the patient who has clinically inactive disease, but serologically active disease? You've heard me say before, don't treat a lab. You said it yourself. I don't treat labs. But this is kind of a scary situation, is it not? And what do you do and what does the literature say? We have a report on Room Now this week coming from a cohort uh, in China that looked at their population. And I think it's somewhat telltale. Interestingly, this topic of serologically active, clinically quiescent diseases got a fair amount of literature. It's mostly dominated by this group and this report I'm going to tell you about and Daphne Gladman's group in Toronto, Steinman Gladman, Mary Urowitz in Toronto. They've studied this and written the most about it. And there's a few others who comment on this. There's almost agreement in the thinking. So here's the story. There's, uh, and you've seen the patient. You know, they're, they're doing well, but they have serologic activity. No rash, no arthritis, no proteinuria, no cytopenias, but their double-strand DNA is high, you know, higher than you like to see. The C3, which was once normal, is now low, could be the C4. So the question is, what do you do with this? Well, in this Chinese cohort, 282 lupus patients, about 25% of their population, they called clinically quiescent. Let's start over. Serologically active, but clinically quiescent. About another 27% were serologically quiescent, clinically quiescent. So truly quiet patients. And they compared those two. They were about the same age. They had, otherwise they matched up well, but the flare rates were different. So the flare rate in the patients who were serologically quiescent, clinically quiescent, all good, they had a 15% flare rate in the next six months. Whereas those that were serologically active but clinically quiescent, their flare rate was 33%, more than double the rate. So they came down on the side of saying such patients need to probably be on therapy. In fact, when you looked at those patients, predictive factors for flare were those that were on steroids, and you couldn't get into the study if you had steroids of more than seven and a half milligrams a day. But then maybe steroids were telling you something, right? Patients who are more likely to, in fact, uh, have active disease. And the protective factors were antimalarials and other immunosuppressors. Interestingly, the antimalarials, the odd ratio was 0.045. That's like 99% protective. Whereas being on other immunosuppressants, azathioprine, mycophenolate, was about 67% protective. So, uh, you know, obviously we're not talking about patients here who are serologically active, clinically quiescent, but have no treatment. Um, and this data says that being on some treatment may uh, help you to avert future flares. Um, this is not an uncommon problem. The literature says somewhere between 2 and 12% of patients with lupus will be in this category of serologically active, clinically quiescent disease. But there's not necessarily a, an agreement about whether you just watch and watch with vigilance or whether you should be treating 
Um, there's one study that says you should give a short course of medium-dose steroids to avert that. But if you keep doing that, every time you get itchy because of a lab, you're going to over-steroid the patient. That's not nice. The outcomes are bad. Um, then again, you can monitor. And, you know, I don't know about you, but patients, my lupus patients, I generally like to see every three months. Maybe someone like this, maybe every two months, maybe more. You know, I think that the last six months is probably going to predict the next six months. And not always the case, but the longer you follow them, the more comfortable you can be with this particular scenario. Interestingly, monitoring acute phase reactants or site or cell counts or double-stranded DNA, etc., doesn't it may be helpful, but none is truly predictive. My advice is don't treat the lab, but worry a whole lot. I'd like to know what you think. Tune in for more. QD clinics and you know room now we're going to do an interesting thing at the end of every day during ACR starting on Friday Friday Saturday Sunday Monday Tuesday we're going to have a daily recap I'll get together with some of the room now faculty and talk about the highlights of the day this is what you should be doing if you're trying to find a nice way to learn the meeting you should invest your time watch the abstracts look at the presentations as they happen you know do your pre-work get your agenda set and then meet up with some colleagues and friends over pizza and beer or at your academic center and discuss this. If you don't want to do it, we'll do it for you. Look for our daily recaps on Room Now. Tune in tomorrow. This is QD Clinic. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by our coverage of ACR 21. You give us Room Now one, maybe two hours of your time, Saturday through Tuesday, and we'll give you the ACR. Today's case, is it RA or is it PSA? So, 47-year-old white female, you've been following for a while, she's seropositive, reasonably high titers of rheumatoid factor and CCP, has RA for about nine years. Um, for many years was on leflunamide, etanercept did well, lost some control, you changed her from etanercept to... Uh, adalimumab and was doing well in remission but all of a sudden starts getting lower extremity plaque-like lesions on her legs yes it's psoriasis it's over the knees it's over the legs it's a little bit you know it's around the belly button it's at the nape of the neck you know what is going on here no family history of psoriasis she never had psoriasis um, she's not on any drugs that induce psoriasis other than the adalimumab she has a, fast, a past history of um, fatty liver disease and hypercholesterolemia. Um, she is not, you know, arthritis-wise is doing well, but wants something for her skin. She refuses steroids. She hates that. She did not do well on methotrexate. The question is, how do you treat her and what does she have? Well, clearly she's got this syndrome of paradoxical psoriasis meaning that you're giving a TNF inhibitor to treat rheumatoid arthritis, a drug that also treats psoriasis, and paradoxically, the patient develops psoriasis. Um, this happens a lot. If you use a lot of TNF inhibitors, you've seen this. The research says it's about 1 per 1,000 patient years. Other collections say it's as high as 2% of your patients that will get this. Um, it can happen um, in any of your patients with any being treated with any TNF inhibitor. Um, maybe a little bit more frequent with, my opinion, etanercept or uh, alumina, but I think that reflects use more than actual risk. 
Um, it's been reported to occur in RA patients, IBD patients, um, uh, etc., spa patients. Um, the interesting thing is the lesions tend to be more frequently the pustular psoriasis variant, usually on palms and soles or just pustular lesions, about 50% of them, about 40% are plaque-like psoriasis. And that's really kind of important here because pustular psoriasis as a complication of TNF inhibitor therapy is like pustular psoriasis. It's hard to treat, which means that you probably can't just stop um, the T just change the TNF inhibitor or hold it for a while. You have to stop the TNF inhibitor if it's pustular psoriasis. So the majority will improve if you stop the drug. Question is, what can you use otherwise? Good news is in RA, you have many other options, other classes, other mechanism of action that you can employ to control their rheumatoid disease. And they may secondarily treat the skin disease. Um, a third will improve if you continue with another TNF inhibitor, and that's more likely to occur with plaque psoriasis cases, where maybe you can jump around from adalimumab to sertilizumab, and maybe you can get away with that. But generally, you're not going to get away with it with plaque uh, palmopustular psoriasis. Um, that's a, a real problem. This particular patient I followed for many years and required treatment for her RA, but also required um, concomitant therapy to treat the psoriasis. So along the way, she was on a Premalast on IL-17 inhibitors and is now on a JAK inhibitor, which interestingly has controlled her RA plus her psoriasis. Uh, not completely. She still gets outbreaks. What's behind this? We don't know. Um, with TNF inhibition, you get a, a, a surge in IL-10, um, and that may drive the uh, some of this response. It probably drives the type 1 alpha interferon response, which is seen in these patients. But we don't truly know the mechanisms as to why certain patients will get this and others will not. If we did, maybe we'd have another and better treatment for paradoxical psoriasis. That's it for this edition of QD Clinic. Tune in for more this week. Welcome to QD Clinic. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now's coverage of ACR 2021. ACR 21 is coming. It's time to get ready. It's time to study, cram. Room Now can be your tutor, your guide, your cliff notes. Be sure to watch us. Watch for our email every day. Watch us on the website. I think you'll like our coverage. Today we're going to talk about scary steroids. I've talked about steroids in the past. They are acutely wonderful, chronically dangerous. You know the case, the patient comes in, been on steroids for four years, doing well, but you can't get them off that dose of steroids. They're still on six milligrams, they're still on two and a half milligrams, they're still on 10 milligrams, God forbid. Or someone's acutely ill or just starting with a new diagnosis, do you use steroids to start them out? Are you worried about what's gonna happen later on? You know, the data on steroid weanings, data on, is not that good. So. First, the benefits of steroids are clear. They are wonderful. They do work fast. They do make you, the clinician, look really good. You know, the only patients who have come back at the second visit or come back unscheduled to give me a hug and a kiss, and I mean even older men, were the ones I gave steroids to. Um, the question, of course, is how are you going to get them off the stuff? So, 
the data on benefits are clear. Even low doses have benefits starting at a higher dose like the COBRA regimen where patients get combinations of DMARDs along with a high dose of steroids that get weaned down and then you wean them off. That works really wonderful. The data is almost as good, even using conventional DMARDs with steroids, you can get data as good as using any biologic. So no one argues about the benefits of steroids. But the question is, you know, do we use them like the guidelines say? Should we use them just as bridge therapy and then uh, discontinue? Uh, so there's this catch-22. There's the good and the bad of steroids. Actually, it's a catch-30-30. Data coming from the Canadian early RA cohort st study called CATCH looked at a large number of early RA patients, and 30% of them were treated with steroids at the outset of their illness. When they follow them over time, of that 30% on steroids, only 30% of them were able to wean, or, or can't, I'm sorry, 30% could not wean off of steroids. So as much as we'd like to use as bridge therapy, often we do not. And there are consequences to that. You know, this was also, also looked at by Gerd Burmester in the Samira study, which we've talked about before. In that study, a large cohort of patients taking tocilizumab and conventional DMARDs and steroids achieved a low disease activity state for more than six months. And then they randomized them to either continue their low, low dose steroids, I want to say like five to seven milligrams, or to wean them off steroids. Uh, and the group that continued steroids, 24 weeks later, 77% on three quarters were able to be in great shape, meaning they stayed in low disease activity and they had no flares. What about the ones who weaned off the of steroids? 65% were able to stay in LDA with no flares. So basically, basically continuing the steroids seemed to be the recommendation, but there was only about a 12% advantage to doing that. And in this short study of six months, there was no downside, meaning there was no ad adverse event differences. But you know, that's not going to hold up in court. That's not going to hold up over the next year, two or five years. Because there's a horrible long-term effect with steroids. And we know that. Uh, you know, guidelines say that they should be used as bridge therapy and be done with. The, in fact, the ACR guidelines are more militant about avoiding steroid use. Interesting data comes from the ICE Bio study. This is an Icelandic registry of RA patients and spa patients and psoriatic patients going on biologics. In this large cohort, in the two years prior to starting their biologic, there was a doubling of steroid use. And then they started the biologic, and you would assume that they would do, continue to do great on the expensive biologic, and they would be able to avoid, withdraw the toxic steroids. Eh, not so much one-third to one-half of patients were able to taper, and it was different between the different diseases. It was easier in SPA and harder in RA. Um, but, you know, the problem here is that uh, maybe a third of the patients also ended up on treatment for um, glucocorticoid-related osteoporosis risk, or, in fact, osteoporosis. So, you know, we're not that good at getting off. Even though we have the best intentions, we know the answer to the question, well, it's an MCQ question, but we don't. So there's a horrible downside to continued steroids. Peter Merkel, a few years ago, said at ACR meeting, steroids are, are the best drug we have and the worst drug, and steroids are the worst drug we have. That's one of the most popular quotes we have in our Room Now coverage. Look for more quotes this year. But glucocorticoid-induced osteoporosis is a common consequence, and now you're treating the adverse event of a drug, 
osteoporosis from steroids with another drug that's got its own adverse events. Again, that's a special kind of stupid, is it not? We have recent data that we've talked about on the risk of serious infections, hospitalizable infections, is significantly higher even on doses of one to four milligrams a day. We, so there's no such thing as, well, that's a safe dose of steroid. Not really. It's a significantly higher risk of hospitalizable infection. Similarly, a significantly higher risk of cardiac disease, including atrial fib and, and other events, when you use, again, the same doses less than five milligrams. So we have this never-ending problem of a circular fight to try to wean patients, but they get worse. Are they getting worse from their disease flaring? Are they getting worse from steroid withdrawal symptoms? More likely the latter than the former. We've talked about that in the past. So what can you do? The guidelines are clear. Use it as bridge therapy. You know, they got it right. And we really should be hell-bent on achieving that goal. You should actively wean and discontinue steroids once you have your bridge effect that's happened. But bottom line is you really need to scare the hell out of the patient. And frankly, the doctor should be just as scared about the chronic consequences of steroids. It's ugly. It shouldn't happen. It, it does happen. Um, so, you know, of course, what I do, I start steroids. I tell the patient, look, I'm going to give you this drug. It's going to make you feel great, but it's going to make you have problems if we stay on a long time. I don't want you to stay on a long time, but if you do stay on a long time, here's some of the things that's going to happen. And there's a handout I'm going, to, I'm going to give you that you can show this to the patient. Here's some of the things that are going to happen. You're going to get fat, diabetic, hypertensive. You're going to get cataracts. Your muscles are going to get weak. You're going to get stomach ulcers or stomach upset. You're going to get edema and fluid retention. There's a higher risk of heart disease. There's osteoporosis. Oh, yeah. And then there's fractures. There's bruising. There's thin skin. There's wound healing problems. There's acne problems. You're going to get more common colds and flu. You're going to get more serious hospitalizable infections, there's mood problems, depression problems, mania and psychosis, and you're going to sleep lousy. Maybe you want to be weaned off that medicine as soon as that's possible. So look for that handout. It's the daily download on the Room Now website. It's called Scary Steroids. There's two versions of that. Print it out, laminate it, show it to your patients. Again, you can do more good by giving less prednisone. I'll end by reminding you, you can register for something new this year called our Daily Recap. At the end of the day, at the ACR starting Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, we're going to have a 7 p.m. live webinar. We're going to stream it right to you. Um, rheumatologists will get an invite to participate in the Daily Recaps. Uh, you can tune in and ask questions, but we're going to discuss the highlights of every day as they happen. That starts with the opening ceremonies on Friday. It's going to end with, and we're going to have a bunch of our faculty that are going to sit around this sort of round table and discuss that. If you've got any questions, we'll take them. The last day, Tuesday night, is going to be Artie Kavanaugh and I giving rheumatology roundup. Sign up rooms. You're going to get that invite in the mail um, a few times in the next few days. The rest of you who aren't registered rheumatologists can also watch by going to the Room Now YouTube channel, and you can watch the live stream there. Also, we're going to put it on the website if anyone misses it. Tune in for more QD Clinics. Welcome to QD Clinic. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinics brought to you by Room Now's coverage of ACR 2021, where you'll come for the coverage and education, but you're going to stay for the opinions, the perspectives, and the many great things you're going to hear and see on our website. Today, it's a peek into the brain of Cush. It's how I treat rheumatoid arthritis. 
you know, a lot of people ask me, well, what do you use? What do you use first? What do you use second? I avoid that question. I generally have never spoken about it because I think it's um, very individualized. And, um, and I have too many, you know, footnotes that go along with, you know, the if and but that leads me to change from my usual course. But I think it's about time that I give you my 40 years of uh, evidence and experience and some bias as to the best approach to treating rheumatoid arthritis. Um, there's got to be something in this for everyone. So seatbelts, please. Let's begin. First, it begins with the patient and you. And you know what? More than a prescription, they need to believe in you. If they don't believe in you, your prescriptions are useless. They're not going to fill them. They're not going to take them as, as you wish them to. They're going to do all kinds of goofy things against your rules and wishes. You need to have a dialogue. You need to be friendly but authoritative. Confident but open to discussion. You need to um, reduce non-compliance by not overwhelming people with my 12-point plan and a four-page printout. Again, small doses of confidence, warmth, and expertise is probably what people are looking for. But most of all, ask them, what are you looking for? What can I do for you? Clearly, you have rheumatoid arthritis. Clearly, we need to start treatment. What's your goal? What don't you want to do? What do you want to do? they got to believe in you first. Then, it's like downhill skiing. Your first choice is easy. Grab the poles, put on the skis, start the methotrexate. Methotrexate is the cornerstone of therapy. We love it. We know how to manage the toxicities. We know how to monitor this. You need to, again, convince the patients that this has worked for thousands and millions of people worldwide. If you can't use methotrexate, use leflunamide. It works really, really well. There are some cases where right out of the gate, I'm going to be really aggressive. I'm going to use triple DMARD. I could actually use that in some cases. But I, if I'm going to use combination therapy, I'm going to use methotrexate and TNF inhibitor right out of the gate. And I can sometimes get away with that with insurance companies. But yeah, I think that's the way to go. In a brave new world, my first drug choice probably would be a JAK inhibitor. But that falls, you know, two or three or four on, you know, the tiering that managed care seems to come up with. So those are my first choices. Next, my next choice is never waste time with hydroxychloroquine or sulfazalazine. That's all about non-decision, indecision. You got a little bit. Let me give you a little bit. There are some places where this might could work. You're wasting time. Use your best drug first. And if you're not committed to treatment, then don't use anything. But wasting your time with initial hydroxychloroquine or sulfazalazine, yeah, everyone's got a footnote somewhere where this works. Again, if it's your mother, are you giving them hydroxychloroquine? It's incredibly safe. But it's about ninth in the list in efficacy. It really, you know, it's not that effective. Um, sulfazalazine has got much more toxicity and it's worse in efficacy than is hydroxychloroquine. It's like the old colchicine thing. Give enough of it to cause diarrhea and you're doing good. Same thing with sulfazalazine. The doses that make it toxic are doses where it probably works best. Don't waste your time with these unless you're putting them in combination in lower doses. 
Again, that's all about non-decision and you're being conservative. You want to be conservative? You're hurting your patients. RE is a deadly disease. Buckle up. Treat the disease aggressively. Early and aggressively. Everyone agrees with that. You need to be on board. If methotrexate or leflunamide are not sufficient, you could add on and do combination therapy. But in my book, I'm adding on a TNF inhibitor. I don't substitute. I add on. And then if they achieve remission, we could talk about stopping the methotrexate. I never, I never stopped any you know, chronic therapy in RA. I'm going to keep them on something. So you spin the TNF wheel. And it doesn't matter which one they take. They all work really well. And the choices are going to be guided by their particular lifestyle, infusions versus injections, how many times a week, how many times a month, you know, what their aunt responded well to. Just go with it. If they're believing in it, you're writing it. Because that, that, you know, patient belief in what you're doing is the single greatest driver of, of success. Um, when you're done with that TNF inhibitor, it's one and done. I'm not using a second. I'm not using a third. There's too much data that says you need to move on. You move on to a second TNF inhibitor, you're losing 10% efficacy right out of the gate. If they're a primary non-responder, meaning they never got better on a TNF inhibitor, whoa, it drops by 20 to 40%. Don't waste your time in a primary non-responder. If you're mandated by managed care to use a second TNF inhibitor, it's okay if they're a secondary non-responder or they had a toxicity issue. But again, unless they had an inadequate course or try at a TNF inhibitor, which is generally, what, six weeks, um, I'm moving on to another MOA. So what MOA am I going to use? Again, they're still probably on background conventional DMAR like methotrexate. And post-TNF, all MOAs work great. And you can spin the MOA wheel, but that's a random chance at success. There are some rules in place that can make you 10, maybe 10% better or more. One, if they're seropositive, choose abatacept, rituximab, or a JAK inhibitor. Seropositive patients respond better. No, they don't respond better if they're on a TNF inhibitor and seropositive or IL-6 inhibitor and seropositive. That doesn't work out. So, sorry. But a 10% advantage at least if you use one of those three drugs after a TNF inhibitor. After that, I'm either spinning the wheel again, flipping a coin, or I'm looking to artificial intelligence or machine learning. You know, in the last uh, two meetings, we've had some data about the rule, the decision rule for use of um, um, IL-6 inhibitors. And I like that rule. Um, it's, it's, it's in abstract form, it's soon to be published, I believe. But the rule is, developed from the IL-6 um, tocilizumab trials, is that if someone is CCP positive and has a CRP of greater than 12.3 milligrams per liter, then they get a significant advantage by using an IL-6 inhibitor, as much as, again, a 10% advantage. So hopefully with time and more abstracts about machine learning and artificial intelligence helping some of our decisions, we can get to better, smarter decisions on what to do, either right out of the gate or in these situations of people who failed one or two therapies. After that, you're on the MOA wheel to spin that cycle as to what mechanism of action you're going to use. But in fact, what you're going to be doing is you're going to be defensive prescribing. When you're now into beyond secondary choices and tertiary choices, there's usually other factors in play. Age, wish to get pregnant, 
prior history of TB, prior history of hepatitis C. Again, it goes uh, worry about or past events with serious infectious events. These will push you away from one drug and more towards another. You need to have a good understanding of the adverse event profile for each of the biologics and each of the targeted therapies that you use in treating patients with rheumatoid arthritis. That's it. That's my approach. Got any questions or suggestions? Let me know. I want you to um, be aware that we're going to have like sort of an image selfie contest. We want to get, want you to submit your images on Twitter um, with the hashtag um, hashtag #RoomPix P-I-X, and we'll post those on our website to show other people what you're doing as you learn virtually during ACR 21 convergence. And I want to remind rooms to sign up to my invitation to attend our daily recap. This is the way to learn the meeting. Take in some of the content and then sit down with your peers at the end of the day over a beer, over a glass of wine, uh, and, dis- and hear what the discussion is about what was good today. We're going to do that starting Friday night, 7 p.m., Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, Monday night, and then Tuesday night at 7 p.m., Artie Cavanaugh and I will give Room Now, uh, the, the not Room Now, it's the Rheumatology Roundup, and again, we want you to attend that. Um, you can also watch it if you're not a rheumatologist or don't have the invitation for the webinar. You can watch it on our YouTube channel. That's Room Now on YouTube. Tune in for more QD Clinics.